Hi, this is Joe Turner. I'm the host of City Manager Unfiltered, a podcast by City Manager for City Managers and other public sector executives. I'm really looking forward to this interview. Sarah McGuffin is my guest. I met her online about a month ago, and we had a pre-interview chat. She has a very fascinating story that I want to share with everyone. Everyone knows that I tend to beat up on councils and mayors for being uh, for poorly treating our brothers and sisters in the profession. But Sarah has a fantastic, wonderful story about her council, and she has an interesting life story. And and I'm eager to get into this interview so you can share it with the uh, the listeners. Welcome to the show, Sarah McGuffin. Thank you so much, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely, absolutely. So you are currently in your first city manager gig, or uh, town manager gig with the town of Amherst, Virginia. Uh, you've been there for almost six years. Yes. And uh, you're also an adjunct professor at Virginia Tech. And one of our first interactions was actually an invite for me to speak to your students. And then through that conversation, I learned about your story a little bit. And I thought, man, it'd be great to have you on the podcast to talk about it. I'm so happy to be here. And, you know, I feel like when our students go through the local government management certificate program at Tech, they either exit that going like, man, this is what I want to do, or holy crap, I'm going to never be a manager. I'm going to sit in like the second or the third chair. You know, it's been interesting because I've gotten quite a few uh, students who reach out to me from time to time. And I, I just, uh, I'm amazed that I haven't scared them off. So I'm, I'm very happy that we still have some people wanting to enter the profession uh, because it is a very rewarding profession, even though it has its challenges and what have you. But you entered the profession by way of being a, a planner, right? And right. Uh, why, don't you, why don't you give a little bit of a backstory so listeners know how you sort of came up through the ranks. So I like to tell the story to my students and say that I am proof that you can indeed do it all, have it all as a woman. You just can't do it all and have it all all at once. Okay. So I, um, you know, did the whole college grad school thing and went straight from graduate school. And I, I had a HUD fellowship in grad school, which was an incredible experience. And then I got a job as a planner in my home county in Virginia, which was Chesterfield County, which is a large and growing suburban county. And I worked my way up in Chesterfield. Chesterfield was an extraordinarily good employer to me. They are um, really supportive of employee growth. So I got a chance to try and do a lot of things. And when I became a mom, they were really great to me as a part-time employee. Back in 1998, when my first child was born, you know, that whole like remote work and part-time working was not a thing. And Chesterfield was just really supportive to me as I kind of worked my mom journey. And so I spent um, several years there as a part-time employee and did a lot of weird schedules and remote work and everything else. Then I stayed home with my kids and I had a small business. I had been a dance major in college before I decided to get serious with academics. And so I went back to teaching dance and I homeschooled my children and I ran a church ministry and did all kinds of things like that. And while I was a stay at home mom, who's a type A personality and does too much crazy stuff, I also served on my local planning commission. And then I ran for the board of supervisors. So I got elected as a board member and I ended up taking office the same month I went back to work. And I went to work for a rural county this time, Cumberland County as the planning director. And then while I was there, I did lots of fun stuff. I got to do all kinds of land disturbance, ENS review. I was the water treatment plant operator, got a water license. And really? <laughs> I wow. Did. <laughs> I did. And then I came to the town of Amherst and I came to town of Amherst 
literally the month after I stopped being an elected person. So I finished my term of office, didn't run for re-election, and then came here as the manager, which was a different community than where I served as an elected person and came here in January of 2018. Man, you have a fascinating backstory. I knew some of that. I didn't know all the details. I didn't know you were involved in wastewater plant operations. And I did know you had your dance company. And I thought that's pretty cool because I've talked about, I think sometimes in our profession of city managers, town managers, that too often we don't have the ability or we lack the ability to see things through the eyes of a private sector business and the challenges that they go through. And so I'm, I, I'm, I'm a little critical in that regards of our profession. I think we could be better in that regard. And so you signed the front of the check as well as the back of the check, whereas most of us just signed the back of checks uh, for our entire life. And it's just a whole different ballgame when you got to sign the front of the check and, and pay those bills, right? That's great. Yeah. So you basically had this massive, oh, one other thing I would say too, um, I, I was a stay-at-home dad. I don't know if I shared that with you in our pre-interview call, but I was a stay-at-home dad. And uh, I did that for two years around the same time you did, but there wasn't a remote option for me. I was just literally a stay-at-home dad. And I was, did that for two years from like, you know, roughly 2003 to 2005. And that was an interesting time in my life. Um, it gave me a different perspective on uh, motherhood, single motherhood, family dynamics. It's a, it's, it's a rewarding, but very challenging exercise to be a stay-at-home parent. And, oh, it's, uh... <laughs> it's an insane thing. I tell people that, cause I had worked part-time for years and when I went to being a full-time stay-at-home person and then was homeschooling, I had about six months, and I don't know if you experienced this, but I had about six months that I was seriously fighting depression. Like there's a whole part of me that I didn't realize how much I was wedded to my self-image as being a professional person. And when I gave that up and had to retool my own self-image, that was a really difficult adjustment for me to make. And then after I made it, it's like I never had to readjust that again. It's like a lesson I learned that you are not what you do, you uh, not for a job. You're what you do in a broader sense of what good you do in the world. And so when I stopped thinking about it was the paycheck and I started thinking about it was the overall benefit to the world, made my life better in a million ways. Yeah, I think being a male, I have a little bit of a different perspective on that. I think a lot of men suffer from the burden of, of having that identification of coming from work, right? We're so wedded to our work and, and what have you. So I do think a lot of struggle in that regard. You know, looking back, I've never actually thought about it in that context. I might have gone through a little period of depression. I never identified it at the time as being depression per se. I identified it as more of just, I felt like my brain was turning to mush and I felt like I didn't have any real stimulation or intellectual stimulation. And so that was a struggle for me. And uh, the other challenge was that when I became a stay-at-home father, I immediately moved to a new community. And so I didn't have any friends or family in that community, which made it a struggle to, to some degree. So you're, you're isolated by just virtue of the fact that you're at home with a little, little one, and then you're isolated being in a new community. So that was an interesting experience for me, but I loved my experience. I loved being a stay-at-home dad, but it was, it was difficult. It was difficult, you know, but my son and I, we have a very special bond. I think because of that to this degree, you know, it was um, something that I wouldn't want to go back and do over. I mean, as far as uh, do different, I enjoyed it. And even with all the challenges, you know, I got to be a little league coach and a little league dad and, and go to the practices because I had an older boy at the time as well. And and so, you know, you, you got to learn to live with a lot less money. <laughs> And in California, that can be a little difficult <laughs> when I was a stay-at-home dad, um, but we made it work. We made it work. And, you know, I've never heard a, I've never heard of a family 
or a stay-at-home parent ever regret staying home, you know, or wish they had more money. It's always the reverse. So it has its consequences, has its challenges, but the rewards, I think, um, far outweigh that. You've had these really interesting experiences. And on top of that, you've had what sounds like really good experiences with uh, employers, government sector employers who have been very uh, supportive and kind to your circumstances and what have you. Um, we haven't really gotten into the, the, the Amher situation, but you, so you worked your way up to the, the planning ranks. And then when did you decide that you wanted to be a town manager? What was the impetus for that? Oh, I was one of those goofy people that knew I wanted to run the place back when I was like in high school. I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, I always knew I wanted to be the boss. Are you kidding me? No, I always been a girl boss. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was probably five. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so how did you know, how did you know you're ready? Uh, you know, or do you ever know you're ready? That's an interesting question, right? Because are we ever ready? I don't know. I don't know that we ever are ready, and I think we still continue. I mean, we always have to be growing our skills, right? I think that the thing about being ready is, at some point, you realize that there is no magic time. It's kind of like being a parent. You know, you're never ready to be a parent, but at some point you're a parent and you better put on your big girl panties and figure out how to do this. And it's really very similar with being the manager. You're never going to have enough training. You're never going to have enough knowledge. There's so much to know and do, and you can't be a subject matter expert in everything. So it's really just about, okay, we're doing this. We're, we're going to take this step. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're right. It's, it, that's a great analogy or a great comparison to being a parent, right? Because uh, the reality is that when you're going through the process, well, speak of your students, right? You have these students that are going to the MPA program. They can get all the book knowledge, all the academic theory, all that stuff. But until you actually have boots on the ground and are going through it, you're just not going to learn certain things. And the amount you're going to learn in a short period of time of just actually being in the position is going to dwarf anything you're ever going to learn in MPA school. Yeah, you got to get something to just get thrown to the fire. I think a lot of, and this is something I've touched on too before, Sarah, and I think you're a little bit different in that regard, is I do think that a lot of women tend to have imposter syndrome or sell themselves short or have self-doubt, and they allow that to dictate or limit their opportunities or limit what they want to strive to accomplish because they have that fear or they have that self-doubt and what have you. Do you, do you agree with that assessment or do I, th I think that's a very real thing. Um, I have the the pleasure and honor of working with a good friend of mine. We have um, what's called the Virginia Women's Municipal Leadership Institute, and it is um, an offshoot of Virginia Women Leading Government, which is affiliated kind of very loosely through ICMA and whatnot, the Women Leading Government kind of chapters. And one of the things we've talked about adding to the Institute, which is a multi-month learning experience for a cohort of women, is that idea of kind of overcoming imposter syndrome. And, you know, my, my middle child was even talking about something else the other day. And, and she's like, she very much grew up with, with me saying, like, you got to fake it till you make it. That's how it works. You don't feel happy, be happy, do the best you can until you feel it. And that's true with everything. You got to just get in there and do it. And I think I grew up with parents who taught me that very can do go do your best there and anybody else is going to be able to you know do it right off the bat either you just have to go do your best and keep doing your best i joke sometimes that as managers that we are paid to be the adultiest adults in the room right. and you know amen yeah <laughs> and it's and it's less about the idea i think that the people get intimidated by the you have to have the specific knowledge but it's not really that you have to have so much specific knowledge as you have to have a lot of emotional intelligence and a lot of analytical intelligence. 
Well, that's not something you get from reading in a book. I mean, we do a lot of book reading, but I mean, even in class, when I'm working through the students in the certificate program, I'm really trying to teach them how to do the critical analysis they need to do to be managers and to think like a manager. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, the imposter syndrome, I think, is real. But, yeah, you're right. I, I, I probably have less of that than a lot of people just because I grew up with a family that told me you can do whatever you want. Go get them. I love it. I love it. You have a you have a fire and an energy to you that is, I would say, atypical for a lot of females in a, in a good way. And we're going to talk about that because you are a motorcycle chick. You like to ride motorcycles. Right. And you're an outdoorsy person. So you're a little bit of a of a of a risk taker in that regard. You know, I think when it gets to the point of being a city manager, you talked about subject matter expertise and whatnot. The reality is, is that in a lot of respects, if you're coming up through the ranks and want to become a city manager, the more time you spend in one spot and develop a specialized skill set or knowledge, you end up getting pigeonholed on that track and can't break through to the ranks of, or it's more difficult to break through the ranks of being a city manager. And I think the, the other component that you talked about that also needs to be addressed is just the ability to interact and deal with people, right? People management skills, which is kind of what you talk about with emotional intelligence as well. I had, I've had a couple of um, longtime department heads, you know, like public works individuals who want to break into city management and they feel, they feel frustrated and they feel like they're bottled in because they've been a, you know, a public works director for 20 plus years. And so the, the key, I think for a city manager is not necessarily having the subject matter expertise in all these areas, but the ability to understand what you do not know and how to how to how to ask the right questions to get you to where you to get you the basic minimum knowledge or proficiency so you can actually run the run the city or oversee those departments right and depending on the, the the size and scope of your organization but i think i think actually city managers would be better served if they started figuring out how to ask better questions Right. right. To, to be better learning. knowledge synthesizers, yes. to be better knowledge analyzers. How do you communicate that information? Those are all the pieces to it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I will delve into a little bit of a personal experience on this because I, I am a question asker and I ask a lot of questions and I drill to the second, third, fourth, fifth layer. And you have to also be careful because when you're doing that, you can also alienate and frustrate your staff because the staff feels like they're maybe being grilled or they're being prosecuted or what have you. So uh, I've run into some of those situations as well. But at the end of the day, I just want to get a comprehensive understanding of what's going on so I can make the best decision possible. Uh, and the only way you're going to make good decisions is if you have good inputs, good information, right? Because garbage in, garbage out. But going back to uh, your wild side, right? Because we got, we got, uh, we got, we got, a biker chick on the podcast with us. Tell us about that. Yeah. So I just always have been one of those people that like do adventure, like adventure. I mean, you know, all the way back in college, it's like, what do you want to do for an elective? Oh, you mean there's winter camping where you can go camp outside in the Adirondacks and you can like sleep in a snow mound? Yes. You know, <laughs> I didn't have a car for most of my years in college. I had a motorcycle. I was paying my own way through college and motorcycles are a lot cheaper, especially if you have had a habit of getting speeding tickets, which I did when I was younger. So, I mean, I just have always been that kind of adventure personality. And, you know, I put my motorcycle away for a long time after I had kids, just I did other things. I mean, I feel like my adventure after I had kids was, you know, being somebody who would homeschool these, these three wild people and, you know, do all the things with kids. But 
Then I picked it back up again when I met my now husband and I got what's called a dual sport, which you can ride on the road. It's a plated bike, but you can also ride it off-road. And, you know, we obviously do all kinds of things and hike and bike and kayak and mountain bike and have a good time, do the wild stuff outside. So you have this history of being outdoorsy. Is your uh, husband outdoorsy type too? Or did you bring him into it like kicking and screaming or walking? No, no. He's, he is in Wyoming right now with a group of his guy friends and they are doing what's um, called a backcountry discovery route. So they are motorcycle camping across dirt roads and trails in Wyoming right now. All right. All right. So you had a co-conspirator, right? So, uh, after, after you've been a stay at home mom and you got your kids raised and going through school a little bit and get to older age, uh, you met your, your life partner here and, uh, kind of rekindled that romance and that love for the outdoors, right? Absolutely. And that kind of brings us to the heart of our, our story today a little bit that we want to talk about. And that is, uh, you were, out riding motorcycles a, a few years back. And why don't you take us through that, uh, that little experience? So it was, of course, during the time of COVID. So we are talking the July 4th weekend in 2020. And my now husband and I were dating back then. And we went and we're trying to do the things that you can do during COVID and not be, you know, breaking any rules. So he works for local government as well. So we're like, okay, going outside and seeing friends. So we went to a camp out. Nobody's got any contact with anybody except the people in your own bubble. So we go to a camp out, have nice, you know, hang around outside by the fire sort of thing, get up the next morning. And we go to ride with one of our friends out through the George Washington National Forest. And we're riding this really gnarly trail. And it's a trail that I had run before and I had run it the easy way. So the easy way of going through this trail, you go down this very rocky hill. And my husband, now husband, said to me, he's like, let's do Union Springs, but let's go up. And I was like, yeah, okay, like, let's give it a try. I don't know if I'll make it. I mean, I might fall over. But if you do a lot of off-road motorcycle riding, you fall over and you get up and you dust yourself off and you rock the heck on. So we went and we were going up Union Springs and it's this, I showed you a picture. It's all these rock ledges and you, and you have to make your way up the rock ledges and then you have to kind of curve around the biggest rock, which is too big and then miss a tree and then hook. And then you go kind of up and you've made it to the top of this ledge. So I made it up the top. I didn't fall over. It was amazing. Um, I was really proud of myself because I had looped around the tree, which is where I was absolutely convinced that I was going to fall over. Well you, made fall, it. well, you didn't fall off because you're a badass. That's why you didn't fall off. I, mean, <laughs> I was feeling it. I was feeling it, man. I, you know, more throttle. I mean, you just throttle it out. It's can't go too slow, go faster. So I made it around. And right as I got to the top of this gnarly hill climb, what I saw was a blinding light. I mean, just absolutely like, you know how, you know, I'm a Gen Xer. We saw those terrible movies when we were kids about like when nuclear war happens and you've got the yeah. blinding light. That's the blinding light I saw. What I didn't know at that time was I um, have AFib. I have atrial fibrillation. Apparently, my blood pressure getting high, my heart rate amping up, doing this thing. I developed a clot in my heart. The clot shot up into my brain and I had four major strokes and a minor stroke at that moment. So the clot broke into pieces in my brain and I had major strokes. And so I, I didn't know that my body apparently locked down doing what it was doing at the moment the strokes hit. So I kept accelerating and going forward. Yikes. Unfortunately, the dirt road curved to the right. And so what happened is I kept going forward and I literally accelerated off the side of the mountain. 
and went down a really awful ravine, never slowed down, never turned, never braked. My husband says the moment he knew that something was just absolutely radically wrong was when I hit the tree, I never even put my arms up. There was no defensive put your arm up gesture. So I don't remember any of this. Wow. Like the first thing I remember, I remember the blinding light. And then the first thing I remember is picking myself up off the ground. Well, you got up off the ground? I did. I got up off the ground and I stood up and I looked up the ravine at my husband and I, and I called up to him and I said, I'm broken. You have to get me out of here. At that point, (laughs) so he goes and he flags down somebody. There had been a Jeep group that was behind us and they had seen us pass them. And he flags one of them down and says, can you take us down the mountain? And so the guy's like, absolutely. Can Can you give the listeners some context here? So how far are you out into the middle of nowhere? How far are you from civilization? Where's a hospital at? Where is an amp? I mean, break it down for us a little bit. It just so happens that my husband that day had put um, the GPS on his motorcycle, which is just um, by the grace of God, because he knew where he was going, but he just clipped it onto the bike. So he had his Garmin with him and we were at the top of the mountain and he happened to be able to get cell phone coverage. He got a call out to 911 and he was able to give them our coordinates because he had the GPS they told him where he needed to come down to, to meet a paramedic. Like we're going to send them up like on a gator to this point And you need to come to this point. It took us in a Jeep an hour and 15 minutes to get to the point to meet the paramedic. Wait, wait, wait. Okay. So you are on this ravine and you're in your, you go to this crash, right? Mm-hmm. And you're injured, but you have the adrenaline going through you too. I mean, are you able to walk or anything at this point? Like how, how do you get, does he get you back to the Jeep and then you guys go down or does he take the Jeep by himself to go get help and then come back to get you? Like, no, we, we, I get in the, he helps me get up the ravine. Um, wow. I put an arm over his shoulder. I knew I had broken some ribs. And I knew I was really badly concussed. I did not know how serious my injuries were. So I was like not frightened that I was dying because I didn't know I was dying. I just thought that I was wait, really- Wait a minute, you were literally dying? So in the final analysis, what we found out had happened is I broke five ribs and I collapsed my right lung. At the same time, and I knew there was something going on. I couldn't breathe. I just kept feeling like I couldn't breathe. I literally like had him help me strip off every bit of my motorcycle gear because I couldn't breathe. But what the, the more serious injury was that I had crushed my liver. So they grade liver lacerations like one to five. And I had a grade three laceration and a grade four laceration and my liver was crushed. The way they explained it to me um, when I went back to see the trauma surgeon is he's like, you take a nice ripe peach and then you throw it as hard as you can against a wall and that's your liver. (laughs) So I was bleeding out through my liver and I didn't know that. So as, as we kept kind of going further, you know, with the Jeep, they kept losing me more and more. Like I just, I kept losing consciousness and losing consciousness. Again, I just thought it was the head injury. Yeah. Yeah. But it was. So is it just you and your husband in the Jeep or does he have somebody else helping you at that time too? So the friend. I'm sorry, you and your boyfriend at the time because he wasn't your husband. Right. So he flagged down this guy in the Jeep and the guy on the Jeep was on his third date with a girl. Oh. And he and and his date took us down the mountain. And he was really amazing because he was ex-military. 
And he was just sitting there like directing and navigating people to move over. And I mean, and my husband said that, like, he said, you could just watch the mirrors barely go by each other. He'd be up on the side of, you know, ramping the Jeep up to get around people. He was just absolutely incredible. So he got us off that mountain and got us to the paramedic. The paramedic had this gator takes one look at me. I don't remember any of this. This is just him telling me this Um, takes one look at my belly and is like, could see the change in color because I was bleeding. And he was the one who said, we got to get you on the helicopter. And so they bundled me back in the Jeep because it was going to be faster instead of putting me on the gator and had me go to where the helipad was. And then they put me on the helicopter. And then there was my husband or now husband, then boyfriend. There were, there he was. They flew me off in the helicopter. The Jeep had driven away already. And he's standing there with no motorcycle. Wait, wait, he's left behind? <laughs> Are you kidding? Oh. <laughs> he just watches the helicopter go. <laughs> and he's standing there. Okay. <laughs> oh, man. You can laugh about it now, I guess, right? <laughs> so, phone a friend. Hey, <laughs> can you come get me? <laughs> I'm at this rescue squad. <laughs> that is incredible. So, so how long, so how long from the accident to the actual helicopter liftoff? Did you have any idea how long that took? It it was probably about an hour and a half. I will no more than that. I mean, it was yeah, hour and a half, hour and forty five minutes, and then the helicopter ride was fifteen minutes to UVA. So you're on this helicopter. Are you? I assume you're unconscious at this point, basically, and you're by yourself. You have nobody on the helicopter with you except the you know paramedics or whatnot, right? Mm-hmm. And you get to the hospital, right? Walk us through that whole thing. When do you wake up or how do I mean, I just. So I have. This is um, crazy. Yeah. When, so apparently when I got to the hospital, I was in surgery for six hours and they contacted the hospital, contacted my mother who was, you know, that's because I wasn't married. So they contacted my mom and got permission for all the surgery and notified her that I was going to be having life-saving surgery and, and who should come to the hospital kind of thing. My daughter and my niece converged on the hospital. My boyfriend was there that, you know, they kind of had to have a conversation about who's, who are the people who get to, to be in the room because it was COVID. So you only had two yeah. people oh, for the I whole visit. I forgot about that. That's right. Yes. Yeah. The whole time I was in the hospital, I could only have two visitors. So it was my daughter and my niece. Um, and, and they were the ones who held my power of attorney. So I was one of those, like, you know, I'm a planner. Let's have all your life straight. So I had a will and a medical power of attorney and a general power of attorney. And so they were the ones who could handle everything. But, what's your, what's your, uh, what's your husband's name now? Dennis. Dennis. So the poor bastard, Dennis, he gets straight down on the helipad. He makes it to the hospital and he's like, uh, you're not one of the two, but sorry. Correct. <laughs> Correct. And you guys still got married, huh? We did. <laughs> Yeah. And he did not hear from me for five days. Yikes. Yeah. And when he did hear from me five days in, he heard from me at two o'clock in the morning. Ah. Yeah. So, so, so Sarah, how old are your kids at this time now when you, when you're in the hospital? So Grace was 20 and Megan was 24. Okay. And they were, they were making all the decisions. They're badasses. You want to know what badasses? Badass. badasses. They are 24 and 20, and they are paying the bills, signing the insurance forms, making decisions about my medical outcomes. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. You did good, Mom. You did good. I, I, they're, they're pretty cool people. So you're in the hospital now, and I don't even know what to even ask next. I mean, this is such a surreal, crazy story. So 
I mean, literally one day you're, everything's fine. Everything's normal. And then you wake up sort of in a hospital bed several days later and your whole life has been turned upside down. I wake up in a hospital bed and I'm blind. Whew. So, I mean, that's from my perspective, that's the first thing I remember. Actually, I take it back. The very first memory I have at the hospital is waking up, not being able to breathe. And I'm in a, I'm in a sea collar and I can feel all the crap on my face in the tubes and I can't breathe. And I start trying to get stuff off of me. And then they knocked me out again. That's the first memory. Okay. The second memory is then when I woke up and I was like mentally competent enough that I wasn't trying to take anything off and I was blind and I was being talked to by a nurse and the nurse is trying to explain things to me. And it was a male nurse. He was absolutely wonderful. Just the, the patient of a saint. And he's explaining to me at that point, they did know I had had the strokes. When I first got to the hospital, they didn't know I had strokes. They didn't know about those until almost like probably about 36 hours after I was in the hospital. That's right, Sarah. I mean, honestly, they just probably think it's a a regular motorcycle injury accident, have no clue about the Correct. Yeah. So when they first, when you first come in as a trauma, they do a CT from the top of your head down to your knees. So they did the CT and, and of course they see everything going on with my liver. They don't even deal with my head at that point. They see all the blood in my head and they see a bunch of stuff going on in the CT and they're going, she's massively concussed and there's something else going on, but we don't know what it is, but we have to deal with this liver or it's going to kill her. So that's, I'm in surgery for six hours while they're dealing with this liver. And it isn't until well over 24 hours later that they're able to get all, get me into the MRI and everything else to see that I've had these strokes. And so that, that was a surprise. I mean, they spent the first, you know, 24 hours trying to figure out I was, if I was going to live. And then it became the, the, then the question started becoming, okay, what is she going to be like? She's going to live what she's going to be like. And, what, and what we don't know life going to be right. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, my kids literally walked through the, is your mother going to live? Okay. Your mother's going to live. We don't think she's ever going to live independently again. And then, okay, well, maybe she can live independently, but she's definitely not going to be able to like, you know, go to the grocery store or Or see, right? I mean, you're blind. Yeah. Right. So I was blind and apparently I talked like I was drunk all the time. So because the minor stroke was in my communication center. So I couldn't walk and because I had major strokes in my balance center, I couldn't see and I could and I spoke unclearly. And. I wake up and the nurse is explaining to me, I can't see anything to like be able to find a call button. So he takes one of those little EKG, like the little things they stick on you that has the little metal piece on it. And he sticks that to the call button. So I'll be able to find it, you know? And so then they start working with me, you know, just they're, they're trying to address all of the stuff I've got going on with my liver. I mean, it was lots and lots of, I had a lot of surgical procedures involving drains and taking liquid out and, all kinds of stuff in my abdomen. And so Sarah, walk me through. I mean, I mean, like, what are your first thoughts when you come to be and you, you can't see, you just know you're in a really bad situation. Like what goes, what do you mean? You're, you're a town manager, you're a single mom. What, how do you even begin to process everything that's going on with you? And what was the, what, what, yeah. I mean, what, what were you thinking? I think that there is the grace of God where he doesn't let you think about everything all at once. I didn't think about any of that at the time. 
I mean, when, when you first come to and you, I mean, I'd had so much trauma in my body and I, you know, you're just dealing with the very basic things of the pain, the, you know, the, can I breathe? I mean, I still, my lung was still collapsed for, you know, several days after the accident and they're trying to get your lung to reinflate and broken ribs hurt a lot. And then they want you to breathe a lot because they're trying to reinflate your lung and, you're just dealing with all of these things that are so immediate that you don't have any time to focus on the what's going to happen next. You really don't have time to focus on that. It's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. You can't think about work when you can't breathe. So you're just focused on like this very microscopic set of things. And I really probably was about a weekend before I started kind of going like, oh, my God, like what what's going to happen? And, you know, that was about the time I was really getting to talk to neurology about what had happened in my brain and them going like, "Okay, so, you know, they had already looked at my MRI and said the strokes caused the accident. Now tell us what you remember. And then when I told him, he was like, yep, that's when you had the strokes. (laughs) And so. And then literally we're three years out now and I, and I've just now found out that it's what caused it. So, you know, I've got an internal heart monitor and they're like, yeah, you got AFib. We can watch it happen. So it just is what it is. But about a weekend is when I really started having conversations with my family, with the mayor, um, with doctors about what the future looked like. Okay. And, you know, it became clear everything the doctors were saying. And, and you have to understand the doctors look at you and they say, you're not going back to work for six months. What they're putting in your paperwork is you're probably never going back to work. Like they were setting everything up for me to be permanently disabled right. because that was what they saw the long-term outcome being, well, but they told me six months. <laughs> so yeah. I, I was going six months, six months. And so, because, that's, because that's them giving you the, uh, the, the sort of the encouragement and the optimism for you to get through and push through. Right. That's kind of like how that works, I guess. It is. And they, they don't want to tell you, you're never going to be able to do things like neurology would never tell me, Oh, you're not going to be able to jog again. Oh, you're not going to be able to mountain bike. Oh, you're not going to be able to see neurology would never say that. They just said, you know, the brain's really amazing and you're going to get a lot of healing in the first three months and we're going to see where you end up. Well, you're going to get a lot of healing. <laughs> there's been some studies that suggest, though, that the optimism, I don't know what, how you want to determine it or whatnot, you probably know more than I do, but that the body does respond well to those optimistic sort of gestures and whatnot. And that if you are told negative things, then it just sort of cements that into the place, I guess. I mean, I've never been through a traumatic uh, situation such as that. That's just a remarkable thing. But you have all these different competing interests, right? You have your professional obligations. You have your, 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 you've been an adjunct professor. So obviously you have your, your professor obligations at this time. You have your family obligations and you have this budding relationship with your boyfriend. Obviously that's obviously got on the, on the back burner, so to speak, as a result of this, but how do you tackle these things? How do you, how do you get lined up and go through? I mean, the first thing I'm thinking about, obviously, no matter what, as a male is, okay, how am I going to provide for myself and my family as a result of being in a hospital, hospital bills, all the, all the, all that. Right. And then how am I going to put food on the table? Right. So walk me through your sort of way you processed everything. Well, so it's July and Grace, my then 20 year old was a college student and I was paying for college. So, I mean, I'm sitting there having conversations with Megan, my niece, who's got the power of attorney. It's kind of fun. They, they fussed about this a lot to me. Megan is a nurse. 
Okay. Um, she held the general power of attorney. Grace was a college student. She held the medical power of attorney. And they were like, why did you do it that way? And I said, because Megan understands everything and she would have made decisions faster than the rest of you could process them. So it needed to be this way. She could ask all the questions, but Grace had to make the decisions. Yeah. So, but I did get a lot of crap about that. But I mean, Megan and I were sitting there and this is me handing her my phone and telling her what accounts she has to go to and who, where she needs to go on my phone and where we need to go to be able to transfer money to be able to get Grace's college bill paid for the next semester and, you know, making sure, and, you know, it just, it was wild. I mean, it's, I you are imagine. thinking about all of those things. I mean, you know, you're really grateful that you put money away the way you're supposed to, because you're like, whew, okay, I, I can pay the college bill. We've got money in the bank to pay for at least a little while until we figure out what's next. I'm really fortunate through VRS. I had long-term disability. Is that the Virginia retirement system? It is. Thank okay. you. Yep. Um, I had long-term, I had like short-term disability kind of stuff. So that like immediately kicked in when the hospital did their stuff. So I was getting paid. Um, so I didn't have the immediate kind of freak out about that. And that would go on for six months. That was written to, to run out that six month time period. So I was really not too worried about that immediate thing. I was much more worried about the long-term part. That's because you had been, I mean, you've been more responsible than a lot of us, more responsible than me, I guess I would even say, and having some of these preparations in place and, and these protection mechanisms so that you could focus on. I think that's a big lesson or big takeaway from this conversation is that a lot of us, including myself, I'll, I'll speak for myself, uh, kind of maybe bury our head in the sand and some of the stuff that we're supposed to not be burying our head in the sand on because that's just humans being humans, right? Yeah. Have a power of attorney, make your medical wishes known, have a will, uh, uh, it's a big life lesson because honestly, I, I mean, you know, if you take my four kids, my three birth children, plus my niece who functions as my oldest child, and you take those four kids, they did it all. I mean, and they knew what they were supposed to do. Megan's doing her thing. Grace is doing hers. My son, Dan, went to stay with the youngest child. I mean, everybody stepped in exactly where they were supposed to be. And that was, that was an amazing, beautiful thing. I'm not sure where to go with this conversation now. Do we talk about your council, the mayor? Should we talk about your physical health and recovery? Because what's fascinating to me is I'm going to share with the listeners now, when you and I had our pre-interview conversation over this video platform that I use for podcasting, I had no idea that you had been injured uh, in such a way because you were maneuvering in the background and getting ready and you seemed perfectly fine or that you're blind. You seem perfectly like you could see just normal. So I think I want to tackle maybe the physical aspects first before we get into the council, because when I look at you through this um, this video conference that we're on now, I would never guess in a million years that you had this accident or that you're blind or or whatnot. Can you walk us through? Let's walk us through the recovery from blindness or the uh, how that worked out. So, um, in terms of my sight, it did slowly come back. And it really took about, you know, they said three months is when the big recovery comes. And, and that is how it worked out is over about a three month period. My vision just incrementally improved. Did you believe um, them? Did I, did I what? Did you believe them that it was going to come back? In three, of course I did. I'm the most optimistic person you're ever going to meet. Yes, yeah. of course you're going to be back. And, okay. and, my, and Dennis is the same way. He's like, you're going to be healed. You're going to be fine. Everything's going to be great. And so we're just, you know holding hands, singing la 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 through the buttercups or whatever. I mean, it's just, 
going to be great. Everything's going to be great. <laughs> I, I wish I was. I wish I was recording a video chat of this because people could see how infectious your uh, your smile and, and laughter and optimism are. Because you really are an incredibly optimistic, happy person. I mean, it just comes through. I think it's coming through in the podcast, but I wish people could actually see it. So, okay, so you're you're 100 blind in the hospital. And they're telling you that they think there's going to be some improvement, but obviously we don't know to what degree that improvement's going to be, right? Right. And that's, and that's you know, to, to link it back to kind of the work part, that's the conversation I'm having on a regular basis with like the mayor. Like we got a plan for me being gone for six months. I dictated um, an email to be sent out to the council that talked about this is where we're looking long-term. This is what they're saying. The fact that they don't think I'll ever be fully cited again, but we do think we need to plan for a six-month absence, and I'm recommending you get an interim manager in. And and it really was incredible to me. The, uh, the mayor and I talked about every day. I mean, any time that I was up for talking, you know, the mayor would check in and he'd be like, how are you feeling? And he really took the responsibility of informing the rest of council because my family was very concerned about me not overdoing because everything took a tremendous amount of energy. So they were really trying to keep down the number of people calling and texting and talking because I couldn't read the text anyway. Um, But also just I'd be exhausted after a phone call. So by the time I left the hospital the first time, I did have to go back later. But when I left, by the time I left the first time, I was allowed to walk unassisted, which was... so, So you have your eyesight back then or walk us through that part? So I could see enough to navigate. I would say I could see enough to navigate by the time I left the hospital. Because I remember they let me walk unassisted in the hospital. In fact, they wanted me to walk because that's one of the things like, can we let you go home or do we need to send you to rehab? Okay. Um, So they were having me actually walk. And I can remember leaving my room and I'm holding onto the rail on the side of the hallway. Yes. And I got lost. Like I literally walked down the hall and if you can't see, and the other part of it is, is because the strokes are in your occipital lobe, it's not just that you don't see. I've lost a tremendous amount of my visual processing. I don't have a sense of direction anymore. I used to be one of those people with a map in my head. It's gone. I have almost no sense of direction at all anymore because the visual processing is damaged. So you're like a normal woman now, right? I'm going to get banned and canceled by Sarah. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, kid. I kid for all the all the wokesters listening on the on the podcast. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. At least I can ask for directions. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So three weeks out, I could see well enough to navigate. So I I mean I could walk places like I so I left my hospital room and I'm holding on to the side of the, you know, the little rail on the side of the hallway and I make it down and then I totally lose track of where I am. And one of the nurses sees me and she's like, What you doing? And I'm like, they told me to walk, but now I don't know where I am. And let me lead you back to your room. Um So, and it's also, the other part is it's really common if you have had this kind of visual um, loss to have hallucinations. So at the time, oh, oh yeah, they're, they're insane. Um, So by the time I had gotten enough that like I was leaving the hospital, I had crazy hallucinations all the time. 
And are, these, so, are these hallucinations happening in your sleep or while you're awake? Oh, no, no. You're wide awake. You're wide awake for these great hallucinations. So I was having, it's called Charles Benet syndrome. So I was having a lot of hallucinations um, at the point that I was getting some of my eyesight back, but I, I couldn't see very well. And that's very disorienting because then not only are you dealing with what you can and cannot see, but you're also dealing with what's real and what's not. You're, you're kind of joking around when you say it right now, but was it at, was it at times terrifying or, or no, or did you, did you just sort of roll with the punches a little bit? So I'm going to tell you a funny little story. Okay. Um, my daughter, Grace is in the hospital with me and this is at the point, and I know I'm having hallucinations. We've talked about the hallucinations. Like to me, you know, if you watched beauty and the beast, you've got like the little dancing teapot and everything. Okay. I had like my little flower arrangements and stuff. And I'm like, Ooh, they're doing all kinds of cool stuff, right? My flower arrangements dance, my little teddy bear dance. I got all kinds of cool stuff going on. And Grace is just laughing at me because I'm like, okay, so outside the window, there's like a big metal object. And she's like, right. I'm like, what is it? And she's like, it's a crane. I said, anything unusual about the crane? And she was like, no. And I'm like, are you sure? And she said, yes. And I'm like, because there's a metal dude on that crane and he's waving at me. <laughs> and she's like, okay, this is just proof that you are the most positive person on earth. She said, if I were having hallucinations, they would be like some kind of Friday the 13th horror story. You and there you've you go. got Beauty and the Beast, Be My Guest flowers and a metal man <laughs> waving at you. Like, whatever, mom, you're fine. <laughs> oh, man. So what's the state of your, of your eyesight now? So I have about 30% of my vision. So the stroke in my right occipital lobe was kind of a catastrophic level stroke. I'm brain dead on my right occipital lobe. Like this, this was, this was a brain killer. So what that means is all the processing that should happen there doesn't happen there anymore. And I have no left hemisphere vision in either eye. So my field of vision ends at the bridge of my nose. There's nothing to the left. It doesn't exist. Okay. I also had a major stroke in my left occipital lobe, so I have limited processing there. So the right hemisphere, I have a limited field of vision, and then I also have multiple black spots that exist within that field of vision. So I'd say about 30%. Are you allowed to drive? No, I'll never drive again. No, mm -mm, I'd kill somebody. Wow. Because, I mean, literally, when I like, ride my bike to work, I can't see the cars going by me. Like I'm riding in the bike lane. Those cars are invisible to me. I don't see those. So, but you're, so you're riding a bike to work? I actually ride a moped to work because you don't have to have a license for that. <laughs> you are a badass. <laughs> yeah. Sarah, so, okay. Okay. We're laughing and we're having a good time and you look great and like you're phenomenal and all that, right? But this is a pretty traumatic, huge ordeal. Like you went from being this very independent, like go-getter, and you still have that, thankfully you still have that attitude, that mentality or whatnot, right? But this has had a severe, this has had a serious impact on your ability to live the life that, as you previously understood it to be, right? Absolutely. So, so what else is, what else does it impact your life? The biggest thing that is um, an impact to me is that when I'm in places that I know well, as you pointed out, nobody knows that I don't see well. If I'm in a normal place to me, because again, it's not about my eyes, it's about my brain's visual processing capabilities. There's a lot that your memory can kind of work through. 
Okay. I know this. I don't have to process it. I only, so I don't have much problem in my office. I, I'm aware of the fact that I don't see well, but I can kind of tune out a lot and focus on the thing I need to, and my processing can manage that. When I go into a new environment, the, the stimulation that comes from all of that visual stuff and what I can't process is really overwhelming. Meeting new people, like learning faces, holy crap, that's hard. So hard for me to learn a new face because when I look at a person, if I'm looking at their eyes, the whole nose and mouth part of their face is invisible to me because of a black spot I have. Oh, so it takes a really long time for me to form the picture. You have to see, you have to see them in pieces, right? I mean, you, you can't see it all at once. You got to get the little pieces. I'll never together. see a face all at once again. I, I will never be able to do it. And so you have to learn faces and pieces and allow your brain to start to knit that together into something you, you recognize. Does your brain have the ability to do that then? So like, for example, you and I, we've only met a couple of times, right? And you can only see certain parts of or whatnot. But over time, if you and I were to have, say, 20 interactions, can your brain actually get to the point where it does piece together these different pieces of my face and therefore you can have a recognition? Mm -hmm. It does. That's amazing. It That's does. Amazing. And it's, it's really interesting because, you know, some people are easier to learn than others. You know, some people have more distinctive faces. Men with facial hair, you, you got a beard and a mustache going on. Yeah. That, that, that's so hard for me. And then if you shave it off, you're a new person. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. New person. So it's very strange. So facial recognition is hard. Um, new places are hard. Crowds are the most intimidating thing in the world. Um, because again, I can't see when there's somebody beside me. I mean, I've been in the food lion right here in town, a place I know well, a place I feel comfortable going in by myself. And a small child will just, you know, how children are in a grocery store will come in from my left side and I'll almost run them over with my cart. Yeah. And it's, it's very frightening to me because I don't ever want to be the cause of, of injury to anybody. And it's so stuff like that's just very intimidating and frightening and scary. And so when I go to places that are unusual for me, I either am going with somebody who's going to be a guide to me, who's going to be on my left. So I spend a lot of time holding on to a shoulder and arm of a friend. Right. right. Um, or I do have, um, you know, the white cane when I go places and I'm by myself and it's a bigger crowd. It's like, so if you ever saw me at a conference alone, I'd have a white cane because it's, it's really, it's the signal for other people. And it also, I, I use it in my left hand, even though my right's my dominant because that's the side I don't see on. So it keeps me from running into things. The, the, for the first, I'd say year after my accident, I hit my head a lot, um, hit my shoulder a lot, hit my hip. I just ran into things on my left side all the time because you're not seeing it. And so you don't right. clear a doorway. You don't clear a cabinet corner. You just run into stuff all the time. You just kind of constant bruises on the left side of your body. So, you know, it, it takes a long time to get used to, but once I get familiar with people and a place, I do function in a very normal way. People aren't aware of my visual impairment at all when they see me in places that I know. Yeah, I can attest to that. Just when, I'm, like I said, when we did our pre-interview meeting a, a month ago, when I was watching watching you get ready on video and come up to the desk, like I would never guess in a million years that you had any issue whatsoever. Never, yeah, never would have guessed. I want to pivot a little bit more to the the council side because your council's been phenomenal in this whole situation, and. In our pre-interview, the way you kind of talked about it was, hey, you were already mentally sort of writing 
this off as far as a career for you. Like, hey, this is not going to work. They need to, we need to make preparations for you to bring somebody else aboard, right? And your mayor, uh, as I understand it, was basically said, no, we're not doing that. Is that a fair representation? Yeah. So, I mean, I actually had conversations with the mayor. I mean, so I did encourage them, you, you need to get an interim in. They're saying six months, like you, you need to do all of that. And I was even having conversations with just the mayor, not with the rest of the council. I didn't write this in an email, but I'm telling him, so if council doesn't want to keep me, we need to think very carefully about how we present this information to the public, because honestly, it's fair if a council says we don't want a non-driving manager and we want to go a different direction, but I didn't want that to reflect badly on the town or on the council. So the mayor and I were already, I mean, I was already having that conversation and he would kind of let me say my piece about it. And then he would say, we don't have to talk about this yet. We're, we're getting an interim. And I was really, I, I can't tell you how fortunate I was. The interim who came in um, is Kim Payne, who is the retired city manager for the city of Lynchburg. Um, he works with um, a firm, the Berkeley Group. They do um, a lot of executive recruiting and interim management and planning um, in the Virginia and in Virginia and other states. And he came in. He would not even sit at my desk. I mean, he went and sat at like the intern's desk while he was here. And and pretty much once Kim got here, I, I talked most days to Kim on the phone and to the mayor on the phone. And they just always were very much like, I'm just Kim's here until Sarah comes back. Kim's here until Sarah comes back. And I went to the council. It was a little bit over two months after the strokes and the accident. And I went to a council closed session meeting and I told council that I wanted to come back in a month, which was half the time, which the hospital said it was going to take. So that would have been three months after. And I told them I wanted to come back in a month, but that they needed to understand that I would never be able to see completely again, that there's, I wasn't going to drive again, that we just really, that, that I was probably where I was going to pretty much be. So we were in a closed session. And at that time, the longest serving council member looks at me and he says, can you do the job? And I said, yes, sir, I believe I can. I think I'll be slower than I was. I think I'm going to have a lot more typos than I ever had before. I mean, I think you're going to, I think there will be differences, but I do believe yeah. I can do the job. I just think it's not going to be the same or as quick. And he looked at me and he said, we can pay people to drive you. Oh, that's amazing. And then, and that was, that was the totality of the council's view. They, there was never... When I sat down in front of them and told them I wanted to come back, there was never a moment that that council said, we're not sure. Can we put it on a trial run? That's um, amazing. That's amazing. And when I came back, they told Kim they wanted him to keep working with me for a month because they didn't want me to overwork when I came back to work. They're like, Kim, you have to make her go home. You can't let her work a full day. And Kim looked at them and said, y'all don't pay me enough for that. Like, I, I can't make her do anything. Like, good <laughs> luck. Like, whatever. <laughs> um, but he worked with me for, you know, a month and helped me kind of get everything integrated back. And the thing is, is here I am. I mean, this it's over three years I've been a city manager or a town manager who's mostly blind for longer than I was a town manager who could, was fully sighted. 
That's what and, I was just going to say, Sarah, because when you, when this accident happened, you're for the audience that's listening, you got to remember you're only two and a half years in to your first ever manager gig. And you were also with the audience doesn't know you were also succeeding somebody who had been in the position for some like 23 years, right? Which those are big shoes to follow in and of itself, right, Sarah? So you come into this situation and you are not really battle tested. I think that's fair to say, right? Only a couple of years in, I'm not trying to denigrate your performance, but I mean, you've only, you've only been there for a couple of years and this council's like, no, we're going to ride with you. It's like the classic, you know, ride or die. We're with you 100%. And if we're riding with you, we're just not going to let you drive. We'll, we'll find somebody else to drive. And, and they do. They they drive me to conferences, you know, normally as a manager, like you take your governing body Absolutely. places and you yeah. introduce them and you guide them around. No, no, they drive me. They make sure it's safe for me to cross the street in the city. They, they take me, make sure I get to my room. Okay. I mean, they watch out for me all the time in strange places because they know that strange places are hard for me and crowds are hard for me. And so they always watch out for me. And there's never been a moment where any person on this council has in any way. And now, of course, we've, you know, we've gone through subsequent elections. There's never been a moment where anyone in a citizen, a council member, a planning commissioner, nobody's ever said like, oh, we don't think this works for us. It's been nothing but supportive. It's been nothing but encouraging. I've, I've had this, you know, entire time afterwards. I mean, like I said, over three years at this point where it has been nothing but supportive for this entire community. Why do you think your council across the board was so supportive and willing to work with you and that this was never even an issue? What do you, what do you chalk that up to? I think at the end of the day, in their minds, it was always the right thing to do. That, that this has been a community and a government that has been very focused on doing things that are right and correct and good and civil. And so they just never had a moment of thinking, you know, if she can do the job and she's been here for us and with us, why are we not for her and with her if she's still doing the job and she can do it? And that's just been the mindset and the attitude for the entire time. And, and I just, I don't know what it is, the grace of God, if it is just, you know, I'm, I'm just incredibly blessed and fortunate. And I just feel like this council and this community has just seen it as we're good. We're all still really good and we're still functioning the way we're supposed to function and we're treating each other the way we're supposed to be treated. And I, I'm very glad to be here. All right. So you had like two honeymoon periods, right? There's the first honeymoon period of when you get hired, right? We all know about the honeymoon period of when you get hired and whatnot, right? And then you have the honeymoon period of, you know, getting back from your injury when everyone's very supportive and everyone's just happy that you're alive, let alone coming back to work, right? But you know, that's been a few years now, right? So in the real world, there's gonna be times when people butt heads, even, you know, even in your situation or whatnot. What have what have your what has butting head looked like in your guys' dynamic? How do you work through these disagreements or anything like that? Because there's got to be times of friction. It can't just all be, hey, we, we love Sarah and we're all one big happy family. There's going to be times when there's some friction, I would imagine, right? So What? Do you yeah. you mean they don't love me all the time? Are you kidding, Joe? <laughs> what are you saying? How could be? If, if my husband were on this podcast with us right now, he would go, no, she's a princess. Of course everybody <laughs> loves her all the time. What are you talking about? 
He would say she's not a badass motorcycle chick. He would say she's a badass motorcycle chick princess. Okay. (laughs) He would say you have to have that in there because that's just part of the vibe. So no, I mean, there are definitely things that they, you know, that I have disagreed with council members over. They've disagreed with me. Um, You know, one of the great things about having folks who want growth for themselves personally is that your relationship with them can grow. And, you know, I just have I've been so fortunate to have so many council members who are focused on how can we be the best place we can be? How can we be the best council we can be? I've made them mad. I mean, there's there's been times I mean, I've had council members say you made me really mad when you did that. And I'll be like, I'm really sorry I made you mad because that that wasn't the goal. So, you know, let's let's talk about what we were trying to get at or why I said what I said. Um, there are times that I haven't done my job exactly the way a council members wanted me to do my job. Um, I get the, the great fortune of being the zoning administrator, which I came up through planning. I know how to be a zoning administrator. It's hard to have time to do it well when you're also the manager. So, you know, I'm thinking about big water and sewer projects and I'm thinking about the budget and I'm thinking about all these other things. And by the way, I have to go tell people to take down those illegal signs, which nobody loves the person who tells them to take down the illegal sign. You get lots of comments on Facebook. Yes. So, you know, I think those are some of the things that, I mean, I do, I have irritated them. I have had, I mean, I have a council member who, I mean, literally a couple of weeks ago said to me, like, you made me really mad when you, and, and, but said it to me in the privacy of my office. And, and then we had a conversation about it and I had, you know, cause we were like, actually, like adults, like adults. right, right, right. And, and yeah. this was part of, you know, my evaluation. So each one of the council members were asked to have a, you know, a time to give me my evaluation for them personally. And so we had a conversation about it. And then, you know, another council member asked me, you know, what do you think you're doing well? What do you think you're not doing well? And, you know, I said the things I didn't think I was doing well. And the council member agreed with me, like, yeah, I think you do need to work on that. And not in a bad way, but just kind of the acknowledging of this is what we need to do better. And, you know, and and the council member then followed that up with a really kind question, which was, as a council, are there things we can do to support you to help you do those things better? Right. And, and I said, Honestly, no, because some things are just mine to do. And sometimes I just have to suck it up and find times on a Saturday or Sunday to come in here and get it done when the phone's not ringing. I mean, it just is what it is. I think that's such a great question or a great point that you made there, because I think oftentimes there are many, I don't want to say most or majority like that, but there are many councils out there, governing bodies out there that seem for whatever reason to want to have this antagonistic gotcha type relationship with their manager. And the reality is, is that we're all should be rowing in the same direction. We all should have our interests in line and trying to advance the community and whatnot. And so, you know, it takes a great amount of empathy and self-awareness for a council to say, hey, are there things that we could do better to help support our manager? Because there are things that governing bodies can do to help support their manager and make life easier for them. And, you know, there's a, two points that I wanted to come back to before I lost my train of thought on these is I beat up not beat up. I harp all the time on the challenges that come with being a small town city manager or town manager, because you just talked about having the zoning administrator. You have to wear so many different hats. And I might get criticized by some of those managers in larger communities, but I think in a lot of ways, you going through your injury and this medical event, this traumatic situation was far more difficult to handle and come back to and for an organization of your size to handle that dynamic than it would be for a manager in a much larger organization who has professional department heads all up and down the chain of command and and who can basically do a lot of the heavy lifting. But when you are a city manager or town manager in a town of 2,500 people or so, 
that's not always the case. Is that fair? Oh, I mean, it was crazy because, you know, the finance director before Kim got here as the interim, you know, our, our town treasurer slash finance director slash office manager, you know, everybody wearing all the hats, IT right. support, you know, she's calling me because there's people who have zoning certificates they need signed off on so they can get a building permit. And she's calling me up and she's like, you know, I'm in the hospital. I'm yeah. so sorry to bother you. But literally somebody is trying to do a shed or a building addition and they can't do it because they need this paper signed. And can I sign it on your behalf? And have you seen this and talked to this person? And, and fortunately, like all three of the people that had come in at that point before Kim got here were all people that I had already talked to. So I was literally able to tell her, does it look like this? Does it look like that? And she was like, yep, yep. Sign it and move them along. Yeah. But it it was. That was a very hard thing. For that interim time period before um, we had a professional manager come in, the mayor was in here every day answering phone calls and dealing with citizen complaints. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that's the thing, Sarah. It's like, you know, we talk about for small town managers too. It's like, you know what? Just because you got sick or got injured or had a medical event, life doesn't stop, right? The world doesn't stop for you, right? It doesn't stop for everybody else. You know, you go on vacation. The world doesn't stop. It's just, you know, we, it's very difficult. It's a very challenging occupation, very rewarding, obviously. Uh, but man, I just, I just wanted to highlight those challenges because I know being a small town manager that you are basically asked to almost weigh in on so many decisions and so many things that would never even cross a city manager's desk in a much larger organization. So, so before I had my accident and the strokes, I um, used to update the mayor. The mayor comes in once a week and we have a meeting and I update him on, you know, we talk about what's coming up on the agenda or what's happening and whatnot. And so functionally, there are lots of things that I do that other, the department directors know about. So the treasurer knows about things and the police chief knows about things and the plants director and so the maintenance foreman. So there's, you know, there's lots of things that they know. So that if something happens to me, somebody knows it. But I used to weekly have like a list that I would have for the mayor and I used to always say to him, okay, here's the things you need to know in case I get hit by a bus. And then of course this thing happens and the man's in here for weeks, like every day dealing with the stuff. Right. And I come back and he looks at me and he said, I'm telling you, I'm finding that damn bus driver. <laughs> Well, the bus driver's inside your body, unfortunately. That's right. the problem. He's like, I'm after that guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it was, that was, that was a big deal. And that was why it was so important for them to get somebody in here. But I mean, everybody had to pull a whole lot of weight to, to manage all these little pieces that, that were not anybody else's job. So this is kind of a, a personal question. I might be putting you on the spot here, Sarah, but you know, a minute ago you talked about council feedback and some of your shortcomings and whatnot, right? And I'm not trying to give you an out or an excuse. I'm just legitimately curious. Can you chalk up some of these shortcomings that were highlighted in the 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 constructive feedback by your council up to this injury and this event, or was it independent of all that? Oh, no, it's independent of all that, you know? So I don't know if you're a Myers-Briggs person. My personality type, I'm an ENTJ, and, you know, I always got ideas and ways we can make things better, and let's go do the next big thing. And sometimes the things when I don't have that phone, because I got all the phone calls, and I got all the emails, and I'm always on to the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. And what really tends to fall behind are the things that don't have deadlines. Yeah. And so we're working on a comprehensive plan redo. And that thing has been waiting for me to sit down with it for about a solid week. Cause I need about a solid week to, to, to pay attention to it. And it's been waiting for me to do that for months. That has nothing to do with my strokes. 
that just has to do with the phones always ringing and the emails are always coming. It's easy to push it off to the side, right? Because it's just not pressing. It doesn't have a deadline. Yeah, yeah. I need a deadline. So, right. If it doesn't have a deadline, it just floats out there in the ether. Just waiting. Just waiting. Uh, you seem to be very happy and content with where you are. You seem to have a fantastic relationship. But we all know that this business can be very temporary at times or you know, very uh, volatile. I, do you have a desire to go anywhere any other point? Or do you, do you see yourself retiring here if they will have you? I don't see myself going anywhere. Um, but you, But I'm like you. You don't know what happens in elections. And I've always been very honest with council and with the mayor that it's okay if there comes a time when I'm not the right fit anymore. Yeah, I think we have to acknowledge that that's a real thing that can happen and that there can be a graceful way to handle that that does not create damage for the council, the manager, or the community. So we've, I've kind of you know, had that conversation at different times with different council members about, look, elections happen every two years. We're on this, you know, we've got four-year staggered terms. So every two years, we've got a group of people who are being reelected. And when we go through the process in January of do, redoing our strategic plan and having conversations, if at any point, I, of course, I'm on a on an indefinite contract term, so I don't have a, a time which they could say peace out. Right. Um, but if we got to the point where y'all said, "You're not the direction we want right now," you know, we really want somebody with an engineering background, or we really want somebody who's going to focus on downtown redevelopment. We're not convinced that you've been the leader we wanted in this regard, or whatever then I think that's the time you say, okay, let's talk about what that looks like for you and for me. And, and how do we as a group agree to do this in a way that, that creates no harm? And, and I think you can have that conversation. I think it's terrible that so often those conversations aren't had and it becomes this, you know, Sarah bad or Joe bad, we have to get rid of them and then everything will be great in our community because that's not really the truth, right? right I mean, right. the reality is, is that the manager is, is just implementing the policy of the council. I am very thankful that I work in a community that, and I do think one of the reasons why everything is the way it is in Amherst is we have a really great charter. Our charter very explicitly lays out the roles of the council, the mayor and the manager. It is a mayor, it is a manager council you know, relationship. It's a weak mayor, strong manager. That's all laid out fundamentally in the charter. And I think that that helps. And that really was done in conjunction um, with a previous council and the previous manager who, who really made that so clear. And I think foundationally, everybody knows going in, this is how it works. I yeah. think it's harder when you go into a place where that's not clear in your charter or in you know, the code that governs your governing body. Right, right, right. It's re really refreshing to hear how you and your individual members of the council can have these grown up adult mature conversations, right? And I don't mean that in a facetious or sarcastic way. I mean, literally, it's like, I, I feel like we've kind of lost that a little bit in local government. I'm not sure why. Um, but, you know, it's almost like if I'm reading you correctly, what you just said a minute ago was like, hey, I'm giving you permission to break up with me if the time comes, right? Because maybe there, and I would imagine there might be some weird feelings about it, given your situation and, and what have you. I, I don't know, but I think that's a really mature thing on your part to say, hey, you know, it's okay to break up with me if, if we decide that it's not working. You know what I mean? I, but it doesn't sound like you want to break up, obviously. Uh, but I, I don't know why we've lost that ability to have these conversations 
uh, these open and candid conversations between the governing body and uh, public sector managers. Um, I know you, you obviously are a professor and you teach classes and whatnot, but do you have any thoughts on why we're lacking that ability or, or are we, and maybe we're just highlighting all the negatives because it just becomes a news story, but I, I don't know. I think there's several things at play. I think number one, it, the impact of social media and the news cycle cannot be understated. So all you hear about is the negative. I, right. I know so many managers who have great relationships with their councils And I know so many communities where things are going really well, but all you're ever going to hear about in the news cycle is the negative. I mean, if if you look up my community and I can tell you how great things are going here, and if you look up my community and you look at the top 10 news stories, it's likely to be the negative things. And you can find things that have happened negative in the past. I mean, I can tell you things that have happened negative since I've been here. I mean, it's not that everything's been perfect. But the thing is, is that the news cycle just spends so much time highlighting that. And then I think that the other part of that is that social media just becomes this place where people put just all the snarky little things that create an energy that if people start playing into it in your community, becomes really difficult to overcome that energy. And so as much as, you know, you try... To, to have a positive energy, if all that snarky stuff starts really overcoming the good side on social media, everybody's opinion becomes negative. And the sad thing is the manager, I don't think there's a daggone thing you can do about that. I mean, I don't say a lot on social media. If I see a specific question, I'll go answer the specific question. I don't ever get involved in back and forth. I'll just be like, here's the answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I kind of peace out. But I think that's really hard to control. And then I think that those same dynamics hit us as managers. I think it's really easy for us to point to governing bodies and say governing bodies are doing a bad job at this. But a lot of times as managers, we get sucked into the same dynamics. And I think we have to also hold ourselves accountable to are we really treating these governing body members the way they need to be treated. And again, I've been a member of the governing body. I know what it's like to sit on that side of the table and to get the pressures you get from people. And so I think sometimes as managers, we overassume what members of the governing body know going in. And so we treat them as though they should know how to act or they should know how this works. They don't. Most people who get elected to the governing body have no idea how this works when they get in. They know they want to help their community. They know they want to make things better. They don't know how it works. And the most amazing thing we can do as a manager is, is essentially metaphorically to take that new member by the hand and help them become a really good member of the governing body. And then and have them understand what they can do, what they can't do, how to make the place better. And when you see that that transformation come from somebody who maybe got elected because they were pissed off about this one thing. Yes. And then they become a member who is engaged in the community and making it better and helping stuff to work better. That's like the most beautiful thing you can see as a manager. And again, I know a lot of managers who can tell those stories I have somebody who is a friend of mine who is a manager in another town in Virginia who I don't know why after being a manager for 20 some years, this man decided he was going to go get his local government certificate, but he was in my class. He says, I'm a very hard braider. I don't think so, but you know, (laughs) whatever. Um, I've been told that before. Um, 
So, and, and he has one of his governing body members who, when they got elected, they got on there for the sole purpose of seeing him fired. Yes. They've been on the governing body for years now. They're his biggest advocate. What a a victory. What a victory to be able to point to the fact of we are able to develop those relationships where now people understand what we do. They understand what they do. They understand how this is supposed to work and they become a, an advocate for the community, for the town, for the, the, the overall governance structure. And that's, I think sometimes as managers, the failing that we have is really understanding where they're starting from. That's a great, that's a great point. Very astute observation. I think that's very fair. I do think uh, there's, there's blame on both sides, right. Of the, of the council manager uh, equation for sure. And I do think that sometimes we get kind of locked into, we're doing this every day. We know the ins and outs of it that we expect other people to sort of just sort of be up to speed with us. And that's not reality. Uh, it's not reality. I, I, I wasn't planning on asking this question because you kind of went to an area that I wasn't really prepared for, but been recently having some good conversations on LinkedIn and whatnot about social media and, and how toxic it is. I've kind of reached the point where I think Facebook is actually more negative than positive for most communities. And I, I think we should honestly start having conversations about whether or not cities should even have Facebook pages, because I think we fall for the saccharine, empty calories, snack candy of being able to push out a message really quickly and it's easy, but it just, it just, I just think it breeds so much toxicity and negativity and allows for so much ignorance to be spread. Um, I'm just not sure it's the juice is really worth the squeeze at this point. Do you have any thoughts on that? It's almost taboo to even say that to a lot of places, but. So. I still think that in most cases, it's great to have, I mean, we don't have lots of social media channels just because we don't have the staff to, to do it in a meaningful way. Um, I still find Facebook a really great way to get out information. I think the key that I would say, and this, this comes along with one of my other big kind of things that I talk about in class is how do you put out information? What is the appropriate venue for that information? And kind of making sure you remember your brand and what that right venue is. Because I don't ever, ever, ever foresee recommending that the town use Facebook to change minds. It's not the right venue. And as soon as we start to try to get engaged in marketing, promotional kind of, isn't this great? That's when we're going to get involved in that back and forth. This is good. This is bad. This is good. This is stop. But if you're just really using it to say, here's an FYI, want you to know about this. We're looking for your input. Here's a survey. We have a water issue and we want you to know about that. We're, we're getting this park property and we want feedback. If you're really just pushing out information and not putting out uh, marketing I, I, I hear you. Agree. I hear you. I, I think it works better. So, you, and so you, you, you'd make the argument that Facebook is being overused by most local governments, probably. I think a lot of local governments are trying to use social media to push out a particular like positive vibe, or we're trying to say something's great. And I don't think it goes well, because if somebody's got a concern, the, the first thing they're going to do when you see a post from your local government saying this is great is they're going to go, but you suck here. Right, <laughs> right. Or they're going to feel a need to go, yeah, but my taxes pay for that and my taxes are too high. And I, I think that if we just stick to the facts, 
then social media doesn't burn us so bad. I think social media burns local government when we get into that, you know, more rah-rah marketing kind of territory. And, and I have the same thought about a lot of things when it comes to how local governments handle bad news or crisis. I think a lot of times, again, you have, you have to give people the information they need, and then you have to shut up. If an apology is warranted, you make the apology. If it's not warranted, you don't make it, and you just give the facts, and then you keep your mouth shut. And I just think people struggle with that and managers struggle with that. Managers have a really hard time keeping their mouth closed when they feel like people are being unfair to them or to how things are, but it doesn't help when we get into a back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, you've been through a lot, Sarah. It's kind of a, again, maybe a personal question. I don't know if you feel comfortable answering or not, but I'm going to give you the opportunity. How much does your faith play into everything that's going on here with your infectious optimism, uh, getting through this recovery and what have you, you've gone through a lot. It's been through, I mean, a lot of other people wouldn't be as so happy and, and full of life. And you're an amazing person. And I don't, I don't just say that just to say it. I, I literally mean it. I mean, it comes through loud and clear. Do you want to talk about your faith and what it means to you? So my faith is really big. It's a big, big faith. And when I went for my second interview here and they had narrowed the field down to three candidates, it turns out that of the three candidates, I was the least experienced of the three. I was the only female. And after council talked to me, that I was their choice. That was it. I mean, I literally got the phone call like five minutes after I walked in the door. I lived, I lived 25 minutes away from here and I got the phone call five minutes after I walked in the door after the second interview kind of thing. That's always a good sign. When you get a call the same day you interview, that's usually a good sign. <laughs> and, and it was like, when can we set up the meeting to like negotiate your contract? So, but at the end of the meeting, you know how they always, at the end of the interview, they're like, so is there anything you want to tell us about you? And I'm like, okay, there's two things I need y'all to know. And, and this is one of the, these are things that are just fit things that are about me, that if they don't fit with the culture of your organization, then I'm not a great fit for you. So I want you to know these two things. And if they're not good for you, then that's okay. I'm just not the right person. And I knew my predecessor, like I was in the same region. So I knew my predecessor and very, very different personality. Like, I mean, just he, he's an engineer and he's like a typical engineer. <laughs> and I mean, I, I respect the heck out of Jack, but we're very different personality types. And so I really wanted them to understand. And so I said, okay, first, I need you to understand that when I'm in the building, like you're going to know. I talk loud. I laugh loud. I'm going to be barefoot, like skipping down the halls. Like it's just, it's just the way it is. I mean, I'm not a quiet person. I'm never going to be a quiet person. Like everybody I know says that when they can't find me in a big space, they just wait. Yeah. There she is. <laughs> Got her. <laughs> like, so, I mean, and it, it just is what it is. And, and so that's not a great fit for some places. I mean, I remember going for a job interview and literally being halfway through the interview and going like, I don't think this is a great fit for me. And they're like, no, it's really not. And I'm like, okay, bye-bye. You, you, you really shut them down? You really basically say, hey, no, I really, because I said to them, like, I had that same kind of conversation. They're like, well, we're a really quiet workplace. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think this is going to work. And they're like, nope, we don't think it's going to work either. And I'm like, thanks so much. <laughs> 
the self-awareness is awesome. But you know, that's, you know, I, I, please don't lose your train of thought, but I want a quick hit on this one. I think oftentimes I've talked about this before when city managers are applying for jobs, I think too many, too often we're just trying to get the job and we're not trying to get the right job. That's the right fit for us. Right. And I think there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with being in a job interview and saying, you know what, this is not really working out. This is not, I don't, I'm not feeling it. Right. And ejecting because at the end of the day, it's not about getting the job. It's about being in the right place. That's going to be supportive and conducive for your professional development, for your family and so forth and so on. So I think it's a very rare for somebody to self-select out of a job in the middle of an interview. So uh, kudos to you because that's the right move to make, right? Well, it just was really clear and I didn't want to waste their time. And I mean, it it really was, it was clear that I was not going to be a good fit for that office. I mean, it was like quiet as a pin drop. I mean, I was like, Ooh, uh, yeah. And, and the energy level is like way down here and everything was really <laughs> quiet. And they were asking questions like this. And I'm thinking, <gasps> so then the second thing I told counsel, so going back to that story. So the second thing I told counsel is I said, I am a person of great faith. Uh, I'm a very imperfect person. I don't pretend that like my faith makes me good. My faith is just really important to me. And the thing that that means to me is I can't tell you how many times when I have dealt with somebody who's got a serious issue going on, because there are times that we interact with citizens who have really bad stuff going on. And when I see somebody, I mean, I've had people crying in my office. And when that happens, the first thing that's going to happen is I'm going to look at them and I'm going to ask them if I can take their hands and pray with them. And what I, what I told counsel is, It may very well be that at some point, someone's going to be offended by that. And if that ever happens, I will absolutely apologize and I will mean it because it is not, it is not my effort to proselytize to people. It is not my, it is not my idea that I want to, you know, push my faith on somebody. It is how I, through the Holy Spirit, connect with another person in a time of need. That is, that is where my empathy comes from. And so it is my desire to connect with them at that time of need. And if anybody ever says no, I'm going to be like, okay, I'm so sorry. Let me please tell me how I can help you and we'll move on. It's, it's not a, it's not a test for them. It's, it's really a desire to meet somebody where they are. But I wanted counsel to know that because again, if this isn't consistent with the ethos of this place, then my being here may end up being crossways to what the council wants. And so I just said that is a please understand that's where I'm coming from. And if that is offensive to anybody here or it does not match this council and it's not a good fit, then I'm not offended by that. I'm just not the right person for you. And that's okay. Find the right person for you. I've had the conversation with students going back to your thing about, you know, don't try to do whatever you have to do to get the job. I've had the conversation with students where I've said to them, the goal of the interview is for you to be your best authentic self so that the person who's interviewing you can really understand who you are as a person and determine whether that's a fit. And, and, and the higher you go up in the food chain, the more important that is. Yeah. Now, we all have our trash authentic self. We're not trying to be our trash authentic self. We want to be our best authentic self, right? Because we don't need snarky Sarah at an interview. Like Sarah tries really hard to keep snarky Sarah at home when she's having a margarita. Don't need to bring it to the interview. She 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 comes out sometimes at work. I've tried real hard. Bring it. You're supposed to be an adult. Be the adultiest adult. Be your best authentic self. But I think it's important when you go to that interview 
you have to be authentic to who you are and you have to make sure that in your responses, you are making it clear who you are, because if they hire a fake version of you, you're not going to be able to deliver that fake version for the next two years. And that's your minimum tenure. So figure out who you are and present that to the governing body so they can determine whether they like that or not. I think it's very important that when you're going through a job interview that you treat it as if you're entering a marriage because you want it to be long-term success for both parties. And the only way that's going to be successful is everyone's honest and, and candid about their strengths, their shortcomings, or their, their, you know, what have you. Um, so I think a lot of us fall in all walks of life, fall victim of trying to make that best impression during an interview. And we don't necessarily project our authentic self, right? And we give this sort of manufactured version of what we think they want to see or what they think they want to hear instead of actually putting out there what they need to hear in order for there to be a successful relationship or dynamic. So I've all, I've already really thought about the idea that if I ever do go apply for another manager gig, which I don't know that I will, I may very well stay here until the, the end and, and we'll see how that goes. But if I ever do apply, I'm going to go wearing like, you know, the, the proper dress and I'll have the pearls on and I'll do the whole bit and I'll be wearing the proper shoes and whatnot. But as a prop, I'm going to bring with me a pair of Sperry's that what? match my dress, tennis shoes. Oh, I, wear, I wear my tennis shoes all the time. Uh, those are called Sperry's? I have Sperry's. no idea. I wear Sperry's all the time. I have okay. multiple colors of Sperry's. I have blue ones and yellow ones and light pink and dark pink and striped ones. And so, and that's what I wear like 95% of the time at work. And so like, if I ever go for a job interview, I'm going to, to wear the dress and I'm going to wear the, like the little low sensible heels and then I'm going to have as a prop in my bag, a pair of Sperry's because I'm going to straight up at the end of the interview go, okay, this is what I look like for a council meeting. <laughs> Let me pull out the hair tie and put the hair up in a ponytail and put on my tennis shoes. Cause this is what I'm going to look like 95% of the time. When you see me, when your citizens see me, when your staff sees me, that's just the reality because I think it's important that, again, people need to understand the vibe you're bringing. It's, you know, when you get to to that end, you know, that manager seat, just about everybody who's making it to that, you know, that interview pool can do the job. That's right. I mean, the the people who, who made it through the first round of interviews here at the town, any of them could have done the job. It wasn't about their ability to do the job. That council's looking for a vibe that or the right fit, right? Right. Fit. Mm. Yes. And and what they wanted, and again, no criticism to my predecessor because my predecessor left this town in a place that was way, way, way better than he found it. This place, when he got hired as the manager, was taking out loans to make payroll. <laughs> and ah. he left it with a fund balance of like something like 75% of a year's budget in each fund, like grant projects, loan, like all kinds of stuff going and happening. I mean, he did an amazing job as a manager. And so what the council wanted, and I didn't know this going into this interview, but what they had already talked amongst themselves is, okay, we want somebody who can keep going all the stuff that Jack had going and make it fun. Yeah, yeah. I, I get it. That's right. I'm your girl. <laughs> you know, Sarah, I've talked to a buddy of mine because uh, I've talked to a few people on this. You know, some some of my peers, when they're going through job hunts and they come up short, they make it to the finalist round and they might, they might not get the offer. And I say, you know, you got to understand when you make it to the finalist round, you've won. 
at that point in time, if they reject you, it's not about you. It's not about your resume. It's just about whether or not you're the right fit or not. And you can't take it personally. You can't get depressed just because you get a job offer. And I think you hit the nail on the head. It's about the right fit. And, and the interesting thing too is, and you, another thing that we don't really talk enough about is oftentimes the council wants to go in a completely different direction than the predecessor, the, than the predecessor, right? So if you think that you got to be the predecessor, sometimes you got to think again, because sometimes they just want to mix things up and do something a little bit differently. Right. If I had come in here all buttoned up, trying to like be the same as my predecessor, they would have passed on me. Yeah. But I didn't, I came in being me there you and go. they went, Hey, well, I got to tell you, Sarah, I love you. I think you're a fantastic person. I, I can't wait to meet you in person at some point. I don't know when that might be, but you are just a ball of fire. And uh, I mean, you're just an impressive person with an impressive story. And I'm so glad to have you on. You're going to be my first actual uh, female interview for this podcast. Boop, boop, boop. Yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I, and I can't think of a better a better uh, interview to have uh, for the first woman on the podcast here. And uh Man, you just have an amazing story, a fun person, and I'm just so happy for you. And also, I want to praise your council, your governing body, for being so supportive and working with you through a very difficult time. I just, I think they deserve all the credit in the world. That's just what a, an amazing story. And and so that's why I really wanted to have you uh, on here for all these various reasons, your interesting story, as well as giving some kudos to a governing body that does it right for a change, right? Can't always beat them up. I gotta be fair. I gotta give equal time to the good guys. They're pretty great. They they yeah. have been they have been good to me, and it's it, they've been good to their employees, and it's a wonderful place to work, and I'm very blessed. Awesome, awesome. Do you have any other final words or comments before we uh, bid adieu to this interview? Thank you, Joe, for what you are doing, and for you know saying the things that need to be said. I don't always agree with you because there are some things you write that I'm like, ooh, mm, don't yeah. I don't love that one, but yeah, yeah. But I, but I appreciate you being out there and talking about the issues that are hard to talk about. So it's a good thing. More talking is what is needed. More conversation, more communication. So open and honest and transparent is what we need. And I thank you for your part in delivering it. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And uh, and I'll say it again. I've said it before, I, I don't necessarily want everyone to agree with me. I want to have very interesting conversations and talk about stuff. And so I appreciate the, you know, um, some things that I find really frustrating in today's discourse is it seems to be that if you don't agree with someone, they're the enemy or they're the bad guy and we can't have you know um, discussions about nuances or the shades of gray in between the blacks and the white. And uh, I, think, I think our profession would be better served if we had some more um, honest conversations about some of these difficult topics. And I know I, I, know I rub some people the wrong way with some things, uh, you know, and I will leave it at that, but uh, um, I do appreciate your time. You're wonderful. I really hope to get to cross paths and meet with you uh, one day. And um, thank you so much for being on the show. I hope we get to meet too. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much. I'm Joe Turner. This is the City Manager Unfiltered Podcast, a podcast by a city manager for city managers and other public sector executives. Thank you so much for listening today. And please hit that subscribe button. Catch you next time. Bye.